it was like really annoying. So already she was kind of on my shit list. Did but she then put she on like, the like cashier light? That's like <laughs> yeah. assistance. Got a cancer patient. Definitely. Over here. Yeah. She was about to have a spill <laughs> on aisle seven. If she kept up with that shit, I'll tell you that much. Welcome to cancer for breakfast with Amy and Steph. I'm Amy and I'm Steph. try to make cancer for breakfast safe and comfortable for everyone, it may not be suitable for all audiences and is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors. We didn't even go to podcasting school. Cancer for breakfast. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Amy. How you doing? I am doing very, very well today. How are you? Ooh, very, very well. Yes. What's going on? That's so very, very well. Um. Oh my god. So okay, today was the first day that you can file to run for oh. elected office in my county, and I did. I filed to run for an elected office. Okay, tell us what you're running for. I'm running for the local public hospital district commissioner. Um, the hospital is a public hospital, and so we have a board of commissioners, like a board of directors. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try to be one of them because they have been uh, awash in, I wouldn't say scandal, but some things Ooh. that I do not love. They had some... Some anti-union stuff. They had some, uh, they fired all their midwives. They got sued by the ACLU. They tried to sell the hospice for, uh, for profit. It was all very weird. So I'm just. You can't beat them, join them, and then (laughs) burn them down to the ground. right. your plan? (laughs) Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I live in a small, small town. And so um, the hospital is a big deal here, you know, yeah. and as our listeners will know, if they listen to my diagnosis episode, I did not receive the kind of high quality care one might hope to receive when you're getting diagnosed with cancer. So Steph is coming for you. That's right. Me and my stage four ass are going to show up to those board meetings. Payback's a bitch, hospital. <laughs> just, just kidding. You're going to be such an asset for them. You're going to make them. An asshat for them? Oh, asset. <laughs> Jesus. I was like, God, Amy. <laughs> well, maybe a mixture of both. Maybe you have to be an asshat to become the asset, you know? That's my new campaign slogan right there. Thanks. <laughs> Checks in the mail. <laughs> From asshat to asset. Oh, I will be your campaign manager. I will thanks i would like to nominate myself how do i file to be you're, a campaign manager? you're hired you're hired <laughs> awesome what's up with you oh i just went to the chiropractor and i only bring this up because i have had like a series of appointments lately that if you are an early stage cancer person there's a lot of anxiety about metastases we all hear me Mm -hmm, saying mm -hmm. this kind of stuff all the time it's like the most common fear I guess Mm -hmm. and I've just had these appointments with non-oncology doctors who like throw around cancer stuff with me that is like really fear inducing and like oh no 
like I almost wanted to call out my acupuncturist a couple weeks ago because I've been having her. I have this back pain that I've had for years. It was worsened with pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Then I had some like sciatica, you know, like it's not cancer. Like I, I get that cancer can be in your spine, but it's, it's not. just like not. I've had a bone scan, yeah, you know, uh-huh. and the acupuncture doctor, when I was talking about the back pain or whatever, she started asking me these really leading questions that I knew what she was insinuating. Oh. You know, like she was just like, and uh, have you had a scan oh, since this back pain started? And I'm like. Oh, yeah, I had a full body scan. It's fine. And it's been I've just had like a bad lower back. And sometimes it's my upper back. Sometimes I throw my back out, you know. Wait, you mean I was supposed to follow up after having cancer? <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought of that. Um, But then I knew what she was insinuating. And I figured by me saying, yes, I've been scanned. And yeah, but then she's like. Oh, because I was thinking, you know, I mean, if it was like cancer, you know, I was like, she actually like said it like that. Like, oh, maybe your back pain is cancer, which means like that it would be stage four. <sighs> That's not what she said. That's what my brain was like. Yeah. Oh, this is how I'm going to fucking find out I'm stage four is like the acupuncturist <laughs> recommends. The, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, yeah, I think my oncologist is on top of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Same thing with this nurse practitioner. I mentioned the back pain and I because I check in with the stuff. I'm not an idiot. I know cancer can go in your back. Yeah. And so I said, should I be worried? Like, even though I had the scan and all this stuff and it's not really one spot, like, you know? Yeah. And so she like looks in my chart and brings up my full body scan mm-hmm. and starts looking at it and saying, yeah, no, it looks like they didn't see any metastatic disease. And I'm like, oh, no shit. Yes. Yeah. I fucking know. <laughs> oh yeah. The scan you got six months ago, it looks like there were three lesions on your spine. You know, like, yeah. no, they would have fucking told me. Thanks anyway. But the same thing with this goddamn chiropractor today. I mean, it's at my hospital and it is in the integrative medicine yeah. place, you know, so he's dealing with cancer patients all the time. But he was looking at all my scans and, and looking at my back and stuff. And it was like he was doing the think out loud thing. He's like, yeah, so... You know, because if it was cancer, it would be, you know, and I was just like, oh my God. is that really how you're going to say it? If it is cancer, you're really just going to say, yeah, well, if it was cancer like this and, you know, yeah. like just this casual thing where just saying that to me in a medical setting is like, oh, you know, and I mean, it's not. And he adjusted my back and he's like feeling better and he's talking about my posture and stuff like that. But I just don't get you know, the dentist even does it oh, like God. finding out that I am a cancer patient, the dentist, uh-huh. you know how they like look in your mouth with mm-hmm. that stupid ass, like long mirror thing and poke around yep, and just yep. kind of look and they might like feel your, what are these called? Your lymph like, glands a little oh, yeah, bit. Your uh-huh. So right as she is about to start that, she looks me right in the eyes and goes, now I'm going to begin the cancer screening <laughs> and says it like that. And I was like, I was like, I'm now I'm going to do the oral cancer screening. And, and I was like, I don't know how many fucking times someone's put this stupid mirror in my mouth and looked around. No one has ever said the words. I'm going to do this cancer screening to me. I didn't even know it was a cancer screening. I'm glad I've been getting them like, great. Right. There's no correlation Cool your jets, gal. You don't have to announce it like that. Yeah. And she's done it twice. And then she like looks at me weird and like says it in this weird voice. And I've seen this woman before, like many times that she had never even said that, you know, and it's just so weird where people. 
What the hell? I'm just annoyed. Like, I want people to fucking get their shit together. Yeah. Because we're, like, so traumatized. Seriously. It's like, can you... It, it should work the opposite way, right? Like, once you've had cancer, people should be extra careful about, like, never yeah. mentioning cancer unless it's an immediate right. concern. She should be, like, distracting me while she's doing the fucking oral cancer screening in case I know that's what it is. Yeah. You know? Like, she should be, like... I tried to go to the burrito place for lunch, but it was close. You know, like, whatever. Yes, exactly. I mean, seriously, it's really horrible. And I don't, like, relish being a pain in the ass. Like, but there has to be some sort of understanding with non-oncology medical personnel that, like, if you see that somebody's got a history of cancer, they have PTSD. They 100% have PTSD, even if they don't think they do. Absolutely. I really want to say across the board, everybody has some kind of trigger around waiting for results, Mm -hmm. sitting in a room by themselves. Like, it's fucking terrifying. Right? Have a heart, people. Jesus. I always thought that, like, medical PTSD was more like a thing that maybe, like going to the dentist and seeing their robes and then you would remember like when you got in that terrible car accident and they had robes or like the sound of the drill reminds you of like the drill sound of something else but like no it's like the dentist saying so your gum doctor sent over your x-rays and it looks like you have cat and then i'm like oh cavities you know like that really happened to me legit where i was just like (gasps) like what if you know yeah yep you're just sitting there waiting for everything to come crashing down i also have some teeth issues happening right now like i'm going to be starting zomita um which is a bone strengthening medication Mm -hmm. um which i'm hopeful will be great because the Lesions in my spine and on my ribs do seem to be really responding to the meds that I'm taking. And so my oncologist was like, this is great. We'll just get you on an infusion monthly of Zomita mm-hmm. to strengthen your bones back up. And um, one of the I've talked about this, I know, on the podcast already, but one of the side effects is jawbone necrosis, which is just like the oh fucking grossest thing and horrifying. But these are the cancer things that you're just like, oh, well, my face might rot off, but I guess... <laughs> I guess I'll give it a whirl. Does that actually mean your face rots? Like, what what does it mean? mean? You said that. Okay. Well, let's just. Your jawbone, part of your jawbone dies, basically, which is not much better. But I mean, that must be a rare side effect, though. I don't think it's that rare. It's one of those things that sounds worse than it actually is, because I've talked to some people who have had this side effect happen to them. And they're they're kind of like, yeah, this sounds really weird to say, but like. I just have this exposed piece of bone in my mouth and like, it's gross and weird, but like... Oh, it's from the inside. Yeah. I mean, what are teeth? What? They're exposed bones. I mean, what's the big deal? Listen. <laughs> so anyway, I hate the dentist. I have a lot of dentist trauma from when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. so I avoid it at all costs. And I went to the dentist because that's like a prerequisite of starting this medication because you can't get your teeth worked on when there's a threat of your jaw rotting, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so... I went to the dentist and he actually was very, very cool and really sympathetic, particularly to the fact that I had said I have trauma. Like I had circled Uh the number 10 on the scale of like how much trauma do you have around the dentist? Mm -hmm. And he was actually really, really sweet. And he said, I want you to know, first off, that I see from your self-assessment that you have a different picture of what's going on in your mouth than I have. 
I see that you consider that you have a lot of problems and I that's not what I'm seeing. Oh, good. Which was number one, very, very nice. And number two, he was really mindful about the way that he talked about my cancer. He asked, you know, how I was doing with my treatment and he asked if I wanted to talk about it, hmm. which was really considerate, especially for he was like probably a 55 year old dude, you know, like just mm-hmm. normal guy. Anyway, he was like, if you'd like to share about how you're doing with your treatment, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear about it. You know, I'm going to need to talk to your oncologist to see if you need pre-medication or whatever. But that doesn't mean there's anything wrong. It just means that we'll want to do a cleaning and we don't want to introduce bacteria unnecessarily. So it was very cool. I was relieved. But I do always have the same sort of hesitation and fear when I go in to see any other kind of medical provider, Mm -hmm. which I talked about when I said I was going to see the cardiologist and she wound up being really awesome. It's just totally it's a minefield going into any sort of healthcare situation now. It's just like, fuck, they're going to tell me something horrifying Mm -hmm. and I'm going to be scarred. Yeah, it's so strange that they don't have more instruction on how to be more sensitive. It really is because I feel like you know, pre-cancer when I would go to the doctor thinking I had cancer, because, you know, like when you're just a normal person, you're like, what is this yeah. little bump? And they're like, that's your elbow, you know, like, <laughs> but they would never say, hmm, let me look at, let me look at your elbow here. Mm, I can't, you know, if it's cancer, <laughs> yes. I would be able to, like, they would never say that, right. you I know, know, but when wouldn't. you suddenly are somebody with cancer, they're like, well, maybe your cancer is just progressing. I mean, you know, and you're just like, what are you doing? You just wouldn't think if it's your oncologist or your surgeon or somebody, but when it's like your freaking acupuncturist. Um, (sighs) Help me. Well, you know what? Fuck them. People need some sort of in-service. Maybe that's our job. Maybe Cancer for Breakfast can launch an in-service opportunity. Yeah, like the (laughs) sexual harassment. Businesses that come into your place of work. That's right. Don't do what Donnie Don't does. Donnie Don't. (laughs) All right. So tell me. We got this letter and I saw it first. I texted you. (sighs) What is this? What is this? A contest? I mean, it's not not a contest. All right. Fine. You saw it first. I'm just kidding. I, I texted you to be like, oh, my God, we got this letter and it's the most beautiful thing. Are you going to read it? I would love to. Because we can't just keep it for ourselves. So this is from Beth and she says, thank you, Amy and Steph, for this podcast. I'm so glad I've discovered it and it has helped me so much as I've been going through chemo. On January 6th, the day the Capitol was seized and I realized that 2021 would be just as much of a shit show as 2020, I was diagnosed with invasive lobular carcinoma. I had a double mastectomy on February 25th and then started chemo on April 1st. I feel weird writing all of this to you, but after your Mother's Day episode, I really wanted to share this experience of mine from this weekend. The past weekend, this past weekend, my family and I went out to the Oregon coast to celebrate Mother's Day. As my daughter, who is seven, was running around on the beach, my husband was taking pictures of me. I said to him jokingly, take lots of pictures of me in case I die. Mm -hmm. I was, am, still in that phase of turning everything cancer related into a joke. He sort of laughed, and we enjoyed the rest of the evening as the sun began to set over the waves. On the way back to our Airbnb, Spotify played Yola Tango's Autumn Sweater, followed by the magnetic fields, All My Little Words, two songs that could not more perfectly capture my mid-20s. 
Me too, girl. Mm -hmm. The mix of nostalgia and the present was too much. And I burst into tears because my joke about dying is not really a joke. While my prognosis is good, I cannot shake the fear that my cancer is metastasizing. In the beginning of my diagnosis, I was consumed with fear of the treatment. Before my abnormal screening mammogram, I was perfectly healthy. It felt to me like the treatments for my cancer were going to be what made me sick. I was so afraid of what would happen to me after surgery and after chemo. At first, after my ultrasound, my oncologist thought I may be able to just get a lumpectomy, do radiation for several weeks, and then take tamoxifen. Me too, girl. <laughs> I remember saying to a friend then that the scariest thing about this diagnosis was the word cancer. It seems so easy. Lumpectomy, seven weeks of radiation, tamoxifen. I was like, I got this. Then after another MRI, they discovered the tumor was larger than they thought and had sent out little satellites. This meant a mastectomy. When my print came back high for risk of reoccurrence, I opted for a double mastectomy. There was still the chance I would only need tamoxifen after surgery, but that too changed once the pathology from the surgery came back. Then they said I needed chemo. At every step, when things seemed simple and doable, the news would come back that it was worse than they thought. I know, girl, I feel you so much. Still, I didn't feel like I had a life-threatening disease. This whole time, I was not thinking of my life being saved. I was thinking about my life being ruined by all of this treatment. Now that I'm halfway through chemo, I can't get rid of this fear of dying from this. Mm -hmm. It took this long to finally face the diagnosis of breast cancer to feel that way. Now that I've had this fear of treatment all come true and have had to face those fears, the deeper fear has had a chance to finally rise up. My prognosis is by all accounts good, but I can't shake the fear that the next news I'll get will be just as bad as it was to hear I had to go from a lumpectomy to a mastectomy and from tamoxifen to chemo. According to my medical oncologist, I have a 94.6% chance that in the next 10 years, I will be cancer-free. If I didn't do chemo and just had surgery, the prognosis would be about 90% after 10 years. When I first heard this, I was like, am I really doing chemo for just 4%? Am I going to go through all of the hardship of chemo, hair loss, neuropathy, bone pain from the Udenica? Is it worth it? Is being bald worth it? I really had all these thoughts. I never questioned my doctor or shared these thoughts with him, but in my mind, I questioned this choice. Now that I'm almost done with chemo, I finally understand the meaning of the 4%. Now that it's sunk in that I do have a life-threatening disease that could metastasize, I can't believe that my two months ago self would balk at chemo if it gave any chance at all of being cancer-free. 11 years ago, when my dad was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, and he decided to go to any lengths to fight it, including clinical trials at NIH, I couldn't understand it. I thought he should opt for palliative care that might have allowed him to stay alive a few more months longer in a more comfortable state rather than basically dying from starvation after more extreme and experimental chemotherapies. To me, it looked like the cure killed him rather than the cancer. I always respected his wishes. He got to make choices for himself, not me or my mother or my sister, but I didn't understand it. I thought he was in denial of his imminent death, and that is what propelled him towards these treatments. And maybe it was, but now I see it differently. He didn't want to die wondering if there was something out there that he could have done to save his life. 
just as I don't want to be 10 years out from this and wondering why I didn't fight for that 4%. Mm -hmm. Now, 11 years later, as I'm half bald from chemo myself, I get it. So here I am on the beach for Mother's Day with my husband taking pictures of me and my daughter. Maybe I will die and these will be the pictures they remember as one of the last Mother's Days we had together. Maybe that's the 5.4%. More likely though, these will be the pictures we look at as we remember the six months I had to wear a hat all the time. We'll remember these as the time we went to the beach four times in five months because we had to get a break from our house with the reminders of cancer. The recliner we bought for after my surgery, the bottles of dexamethasone, and procloperazine. We'll remember this as the time my daughter and I said I love you incessantly every time we parted from one another. The time we clung to each other in the face of the seemingly impossible. That's what these pictures are likely to mean. That's what the 94.6% means to me today. Thank you again for your podcast. As a newly arrived cancer person, it is seriously helping me process all of this. Thank you. XOXO, Beth Lifson, Portland, Orr. Who? Beth, thank you so much. Number one, Autumn Sweater is the jam. Totally. And is also one of my big feeling songs. Like mm-hmm. it is the soundtrack of so many important moments in my life. So that immediately was just like, uh huh, yep, you're my you're my people. Seriously, you're my people, Beth, and you live in my city. Yeah, lucky ducks. I completely get it. And also, interestingly, I also I have a dad who died of lung cancer. Um, although he did opt for palliative care, and it's just. Uh, you really don't understand what those statistics mean until you're in them. Mm-hmm. And I know we say all the time that, you know, we respect people no matter what they choose. But for me personally, I just couldn't. I couldn't decline a treatment that might give me more time. Mm-hmm. And I think it means all the more when you, when you have loved ones Absolutely. who, you know, you want to stick around for. Definitely. And also, I feel like sometimes with these percentages that they give you, like, sometimes it could be just a few more or a few less. And you really don't know. Yeah. There's such a difference between like 4% and 6% or 6% and 8%, you know? And it's like... Mm -hmm. I will say that um, a 90% is an A-. And I got an A- in penmanship once upon a time when I cared about grades. And I... Uh, immediately took great offense. I was affronted by that A minus <sighs> and I immediately set to making my penmanship the greatest that ever there was. And now you're running for office. <laughs> I don't know. I think if you're a person that sees things in those kinds of terms, it's easy for you to see yeah. why 90% is just not an acceptable yeah. number. I mean, yeah. And if you think of like a hundred things being in a barrel and having to pick one out and knowing that 10 of them are your death, yeah. you know, that doesn't seem like a small number to me. Like, and I mean, like, and I'm saying this being somebody who's like in your similar boat right. as far as like yeah. that kind of stuff. But, um, but, and I, I was also with the chemo, same exact thing, or it was, I think I had maybe a 6% benefit if I did chemo versus not doing chemo. It just is so hard to say no to anything. I was just thinking about, you know, when I was 
getting diagnosed and that horrible loop was in my mind. And I was telling you, Amy, all about it because when you are in those, in the throes of like that desperate time when Mm -hmm. you're getting diagnosed and you don't know which way is up and all you can think about is your own funeral and who's going to be there and yeah scoping people out for who might make a nice stepmother for your (laughs) for your children once you're dead um (laughs) which is like laughable you know it really is but still these are the things that we think about yes no i i absolutely thought yeah but you shared with with me something that i wish everybody could hear you told me about how you made future memories oh my future memories and yes. I, I want you to tell will you tell everybody about it this is something that really worked for me and I would absolutely recommend it to anybody who is in this boat Beth that you're in during treatment where I think you just explained it so well I know so many people who have gone through this and they all get to this point where they're like, I'm, I'm just going to die. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't even matter what your doctors are telling you. It doesn't even matter if you didn't have to do chemo and you, you got to just do the tamoxifen and radiation and be done. You would probably still be going through this little mind fuck for a while. Mm-hmm. It just happens. It's part of the process. But for early stagers having this problem, this is what I do. And actually, if you're a metastatic, I think you could practice this too as far as just seeing your future and your health for a long time, right? Absolutely. I still use Anyone it. Can. I, I use it even though, you know, this was something that you told me about before I knew that I was metastatic, but it is still something that I use all the time. Anytime I find myself spiraling and imagining those horrible mm-hmm. scenarios because they're just, they're not true. So, so what I would do, um, because I felt like a movie would just start playing about me dying and, I would just not be able to stop it. I would just be thinking all these things. We're talking about like, who would be the stepmom or like, mm-hmm. what would be happening? And then by the time I catch myself being so far into it, so many details will have been laid out, which makes that feel so real, right? When there's all your brain is just trying to find things that make sense and that's feeding on your worry. So what I would do to combat that is create fake future memories. For example, mine was that. I would be coaching Josie in softball. She was, what, two at the time? Mm -hmm. So I would think of, okay, she's like eight. Because also at that time, I thought if you had metastatic disease, you'd be dead in a year. You know, like I totally was just like, you know, this the ball is rolling and I am like headed to that coffin. So I would just be like, so Josie's eight. I am her softball coach, but assistant softball coach (laughs) because who needs that kind of responsibility? Um, but I would just visualize everything about the field and like, you know, like the smell of like the dust in the sun and the green grass and like, what does the sun feel like on my cheeks? And what are the sounds of the bats crackling the ball and like the kids screaming and the smell of popcorn in the air or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's like a very freckled redheaded kid with a <laughs> scratchy voice. Cause there's like always one of those on the team, you know? And mm-hmm. so I, I was just working really, really hard to have every single detail just focused on and focused on. And I would just walk Josie with a stroller and just like take these walks and just visualize it and listen to really peaceful music in my headphones as I was doing this. Yeah. So that was a good calming way to just to be taking a walk. So that served that purpose. But then I would have that kind of in my 
back pocket for when this movie would start playing of me being dead. And I would say, oh, no, 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 no. Like that future memory isn't real Mm -hmm. because I'm coaching Josie in softball. Like I already know that's happening. Like I have to like, let's think about that one because if one of those can feel so real, the other one has to have that same power because they are similar things. There's things that you are conjuring in your mind. So if you can't admit that the one that is good isn't just as real, then like, I don't know what to tell you because... That is such a completely valid point that I want everybody to take to heart because I am a born pessimist. I will Mm -hmm. do any kind of mental gymnastics to tell myself, but no, the real outcome is that I'm going to have this, you know, funeral or whatever. Like I'm just fooling myself if I make up some other kind of pleasant memory, but they're equal, you know, all things being equal. Why not choose the nice one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you can't believe the nice one and choose it, then you have to not believe the other one, too. Like, you have to bring that one down, Yeah, you know, because that's all that it is. And the way that our brains do deal with trauma and everything is it does our our neurological pathways. They just find ways to the negative so much easier than the positive. I mean, just like everything in life, everything hard is usually good for you. Everything easy is like, yeah not you know like you have to work harder to make your brain do the good stuff yeah and I get it that like it's hard especially when you're in the midst of treatment or you're at those early days of diagnosis it is really really hard to pull yourself out of that mire of negativity and fear and anxiety but it's so worth it like I do have a really hard time making myself be optimistic, but Mm -hmm. it helps so much. And it was such a gift when you shared that with me. Like I've completely taken it to heart and I have, I have a pocket full of these little Mm. daydreams that I can revisit like whenever I want to, because it's my own ass brain. (laughs) My own ass brain. (laughs) I think you just named our episode. (laughs) Oh, Let me just tell you one more visual thing that I used to do that (laughs) I don't know how this is going to translate. I have never actually said this out loud because it's so stupid sounding. Oh, I doubt that. I have. I must say this is not something I believe, even though I made it into an exercise. Like I didn't actually believe what, what I'm about to tell you. Okay. So a couple months before I was diagnosed with cancer, myself, Kevin, and our daughter, who was like a year old at the time, a little bit younger, maybe. Um, we were just walking in the park on this beautiful day, and she had just kind of been playing on the playground pre pandemic, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we we're just so happy, you know, like my long blonde hair is flowing, <laughs> and I'm wearing some little dress, and we're just like the picture of a happy little family walking yeah. through the park. And then this old man starts walking towards us and there are a couple people kind of walking behind him I couldn't really tell if he was with the people or if he was alone it was very unclear but he was carrying something that it looked like it might have been like um, a file of some sort or maybe like a notebook or something of that size Mm -hmm. and when he was about like 15 feet away from us he just pulled up the notebook or whatever it was and started shaking it while he looked at me and glared at me. Oh, no. 
in this absolutely creepy way. He was like, ah, and like, like it looked like he was like possessed and shaking this thing right at me. Yikes. Dead in the fucking eyes. And I was like, what in the everlasting shit was that? But I was like, whatever, you know, like we just kind of keep walking and then Kevin and I are chatting and I was like, dude, that dude just put a hex yeah, on me. you got cursed, girl. And yeah. And Kevin was like laughing and I was like, he did. He put a hex on me. I was like, why was Why me? Why fucking me? And I was like, just kind of like being funny, being like, what, what, why me of all people? Why? You know? And we were kind of laughing about it. Like whatever that, that crazy old man, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it was like one thing after another, like two weeks later, we got a phone call that Josie had this was a false diagnosis, but they said that she had lead poisoning, <gasps> that her lead levels were like through the roof. Oh my God. And I was just freaking out. And I, I totally thought that we had like poisoned her. And like the health department was literally on the phone with me talking to me about how she's going to qualify for like special <gasps> needs resources bec- and all of this stuff. Anyways, she got an IV test. She doesn't have lead poisoning. It was a mistake. But all these things just started to slowly unravel and fall apart. And then I got cancer and then the pandemic hit and then I like lost every source of income I was like all these things just kept happening so I was like because you're crazy cancer makes you crazy Mm -hmm. it makes your brain look for any sort of thing and I was like do you think that old man really did (laughs) something like what the fuck you know and I was like joking because I obviously don't believe that and it was just kind of like a funny callback but then I actually turned that into a visual for myself like that I would use because I would do it one of two ways because of the fact that I really believe if you're going to do something crazy with your brain, you have to be open to either way of it being crazy. Mm -hmm. And so one way was that he was putting a curse on me and I was holding my hand up like a shield to like say, no. And like, I would like be like fighting it off. Like, like I would like visualize that even like in treatment sometimes so that like that could represent the cancer that was coming at me and then me visualizing it bouncing off and going out into the atmosphere and away from me. It was like something to do like maybe during chemo to imagine it working kind of. Or I realized I could turn it around and make it so what that dude was doing was actually saying, oh shit, oh shit, she has cancer it needs to reveal itself to save her life. And then he's like throwing the notebook saying, ah, save her or something crazy like that, that he's throwing at me, which is then why I found it and got to get treatment, you know? So I was like, I would just make up these things. I legit am 100% sure that was just a batshit crazy old man that I saw in the park one day. I swear to God, I'm not the crazy one who actually believes any of the shit, but just making up weird ass Uh visualizations I just think can kind of help you if you can get down with it I've also told myself to visualize certain stuff that I think is bullshit and stupid and I laugh at myself and I'm like I'm not doing that so whatever you're comfortable (laughs) with because I sometimes I'm like come on come on Amy I'm not that that weird I can't believe I'm about to admit this I don't not think he was putting putting a hex on you oh I am Okay, I am one superstitious bitch. I really am. Oh, geez. Okay. I I apologize deeply. I love it. Bring it at me. But I do think that 
there is a lot of power in that kind of visualization. You know, I'm the kind of person that like doesn't officially believe in astrology. Mm -hmm. But like if you try to tell me I'm not a Virgo Mm -hmm. with a Virgo rising, Mm -hmm. I will fight you. That's just what a Virgo would do. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think, too, that they're like we talked about this in our episode where we talked about like religion and and all that stuff. Like Mm -hmm. I have always been a total skeptic, but having cancer has really opened me up to the crazy possibilities of the universe. And I do think that there is power in, you know, maybe just harnessing those weird interactions and using them for Mm -hmm. your own benefit. Probably, yes, it was a man with mental illness. Yeah. That seems to be the case no matter what. But why not just like use that to say, yes, I believe that he was revealing my cancer and he was trying to, Mm -hmm. he was trying to make me aware of it. Why the hell not? I mean, God. Um, I do like sharing that one with people I know that are going through treatment and the other one that I always tell them is, which I think I brought up in the Amos Ode, that like, you're not psychic and you're not, we all feel like we have some special little feeling or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's just cancer, dude. That's just what cancer tells you. Yeah, It's not that you just have a feeling or that you just know deep down something. No, 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 no. And everybody in your position feels that exact same way. Mm-hmm. I feel like. We have this idea that our intuition goes into overdrive when there's something really catastrophically wrong with our bodies, but it's not true. I I want to be intuitive also. I really like being special, (laughs) but I'm not, unfortunately. I know. It's a very popular thing to be for (laughs) white ladies of our age. It is. So fucking psychic. We just think we are. I know, but, but we're not. We're just not. It's It's just just cancer cancer. telling you those goddamn lies. (sighs) Hate it. Hey, you know what? Speaking of neural pathways. Wait, do I smell a rat? I think you do. different because I don't feel like I can speak to this subject really with any kind of authority. Not like I usually can, because obviously I'm not a researcher or a scientist, but this one I really don't have a great grasp on, but it was so fucking cool that I had to bring it up. I can't wait. So there's this article in the New Yorker in March and a friend sent us a link to this story too, but you're going to have to follow me down this long and winding path to get to the meat of the story. But <clears throat> apparently in Japan, I have never been to Japan. Have you been to Japan? I have been to Japan where I saw Yola Tango oh! perform Autumn's Weather <gasps> Lucky. at the Fuji Rock Fest. Ooh. So I was just thinking about that as we were reading her letter. Well, in Japan, relatively recently, like within the past 10 years, bakeries have become a really big thing, like patisseries. Mm. Yeah. And market research revealed that the more variety that the bakeries had, the better they did. So mm-hmm. there was kind of this rush to make as many different kinds of pastries as a bakery could manage. And they also 
learned that they sold better when they were not wrapped in cellophane because a fresher look Mm. like they had just been baked was more appealing to people. So unfortunately, these patisseries were coming up with new pastries faster than their staff could learn which was what. And this created really long lines. Apparently, it was like a really big deal. It was like Mm. just like a constant problem for bakeries that were popping up everywhere. And so there's this guy who is a longtime artificial intelligence scientist and inventor. And he has this company called Brain Co. Mm -hmm. And in the 80s, he started out making artificial intelligence that dealt with like the textile industry and stuff and never really made it big. But he developed this artificial intelligence that was able to tell pastries apart. And this revolutionized the pastry industry in Japan in 2013. Hmm. His product is called Bakery Scan. And basically, it's a backlit platform where you put the pastries and they get scanned from the top. And the program is able to tell what kind of pastry they are based on neural networks, not deep learning. So the difference apparently is, you know, the CAPTCHAs that we have to do to prove we're not a robot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there a stoplight? Yes, exactly. In this picture? (laughs) That's um, deep learning. So they basically crowdsource information in order to teach the artificial intelligence what's a stoplight, what's a croissant, whatever. Mm -hmm. But that takes a long time and it takes a lot of input. So the neural network method was appealing, I guess, to these bakeries because it was faster There was a higher turnover of the pastries. This is crazy for a cancer podcast, right? I get it, but follow me. Oh, I'm (laughs) clinging to you everywhere. Go on. So uh, the researchers were really happy. The bakery scan was working great. It was accurate over 90% of the time. And then the times that it wasn't accurate, it would offer the cashiers like a few options to choose. And then it would learn based on that. So it was kind of like a combo of the deep learning versus the neural networks. Okay. So they're using this to scan the bakery items so that the cashiers can ring it up and know what it is so that they don't have to look at it and be like, what the hell is this? Okay. I get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This like Totoro bun. What the hell is this? Okay. (laughs) So, um, isn't it Totoro? I don't know. We've always said Totoro. I haven't ever seen it. Oh, <gasps> so Josie needs to watch my neighbor Totoro right right away. I know. I know. Um, okay, go on. Okay. So anyway, bakery scan, awesome innovation. Cashiers in patisseries all over Japan are thrilled. And apparently some cancer researchers had visited some bakeries and seen this technology at work and also had coincidentally realized that the shapes that they were seeing being outlined on these platforms that the artificial intelligence was using to identify the pastries really had a lot in common with cancer cells. Hmm. And so they decided to get in touch with the creator of Bakery Scan to see if the artificial intelligence could also be applied to identifying cancer cells. You know, you guys like scans. We're cancer people. We like scans. Like, let's work together. Exactly. And like, it sounds crazy because to me, I want like an actual human being looking at the microscope. And I just want a Danish. <laughs> right? Okay. One, one or the other. <laughs> ideally both. But um, oncologists only have as much info as they 
can learn, you know, so Uh it's potentially helpful to have artificial intelligence that can work as your backup, I would assume, as an oncologist or a pathologist. And so they actually were able to apply bakery scans technology to identifying cancer cells. And instead of what they apparently have done historically by isolating the single cancer cells and looking at them, bakery scans technology is able to look at the entire slide on the microscope and identify which is a cancer cell and which is not. And so... It's in use. Like they're using it right now. Wow. To diagnose cancer. That's amazing. The article, I understood like 5% of this article because it was so in depth and there was so much science to it. And I am not like an AI person. I don't understand the difference between mm-hmm. really the deep learning and the neural network thing. But, and I don't even know how to pronounce Totoro. <laughs> <laughs> But I will link to this story in The New Yorker. It was a crazy, crazy read. And I did do some more research about how AI is being used. Um, It seems like primarily it's being used to diagnose lung cancer. Hmm. But it's neat. And I, I did read this interview with an oncologist who said basically what I said earlier, like he can only go to as much school as he has time for. Yeah. There was a case that... In this interview, he cited where he thought that a patient had one type of cancer. The biopsy was a little bit weird. He almost had started her treatment, and then he wanted to double check. And it turned out to actually be a glioblastoma, not the other kind of cancer that he had originally diagnosed. So he was like, you know, it's really helpful to have the AI running as a backup. Because he was like, I would have been wrong. I would have given her the wrong treatment. No. Um. Oh, that makes me so nervous that that even is a possibility. Yeah, right? I mean, the key, I think, is humility and being able to understand when technology is actually helpful and when it's like out for your job, which is always, I feel like, Mm -hmm. the line that we hear all the time that like we're going to be replaced by robots. But well, if it'll save our lives, I'm all for it. Yeah, right? Jeez, that's crazy. And it seems like there could be so much potential for different ways of identifying cells that maybe they don't even realize are connected to your cancer cells too. Totally. Like things in common with people with different diagnoses. Yeah. That's wonderful. I love it. Great rat stuff. Thank you. I'm definitely voting for you. (laughs) Thanks. Your first run for office. Any opportunity to talk about pastry, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I think that's that's an episode, eh? I think that it is. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening to yeah. Cancer for Breakfast. Follow us over on the Instagram. <laughs> and Steph is going to post her campaign poster. <laughs> I don't know if you even have one, but as your campaign manager, you will. <laughs> and I will link in the show notes that New Yorker article so your minds can be blown, too. And hey, send us a letter. If you've got one brewing. Please do. Take it off ice chest and defrost it. Put it on some paper. Send it on over. Farewell, friends. Cancer for Breakfast is hosted by Amy Diles and Stephanie Lejeunesse and produced by Nathan McGeehee. Our theme music is written and performed by Vivivir. Find us at cancerforbreakfast.com, Instagram at cancerforbreakfast, and email at cancerforbreakfast at gmail.com. Bye.
much for listening. Thanks for listening. 